Chapter 7 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 7 Religion. Quote, the religion of a people prevailing at any time or place is the highest expression of which that people is then and there capable. End quote. The relation of the church to the state is one of the problems which the republic may be said to have solved. It is decided that it has no relation whatever. The state has as much relation to religion as to medicine, and no more, and it might as well establish homeopathy as its medical system, as episcopacy as its religion. It might as well undertake the health of the body as of the soul, indeed far better, since it is a much less complex task. In the Republic, the regulation of religious beliefs by the state would be regarded as absurd as the regulation of dress. It is not even admitted that the state has a right to patronize one form of religion, much less one sect, to the prejudice of other forms. Buddhism, Confucianism, or the crudest fetishism stand in exactly the same relation to the state as any of the sects which derive their creeds from the teachings of Christ. No form of worship, no religious creed is selected by the state for special favor. The heathen Chani in New York may worship his ancestors with a restful consciousness that the black-coated Christian passing with gold-edged book to church is not more favored by the state. And how does this system of perfect religious equality work? Perfectly, as to all sects in general, much better than the advocates of the state church system in the motherland could believe for the Anglican church in particular which is vigorous to a degree which might well be envied by the parent stem. So far from religion being neglected by the people, the number of religious edifices in proportion to population is far greater in America than in Britain, and the congregations frequenting them are quite as large. In England, there are 35,000 churches, or 144 to each 100,000 inhabitants. In the United States, there are 92,000 churches, or 181 to each 100,000 inhabitants. Of the latter, more than 80,000 are owned by Protestants. The steps leading to this remarkable result display the same general character as every other kind of advancement in America, progress by leaps and bounds. At the beginning of the century, students of Yale and Harvard were accustomed to call themselves by the names of French and German infidels, and only a small proportion of the students in colleges were church members. All this has been changed. From 1870 to 1880, Harvard, the most advanced of all universities, graduated more than 1,400 young men, only two of whom publicly registered themselves as skeptics. In 1800, when the population of the United States was about five millions, the number of communicants in the various churches was 364,000, an average of one to 15 of the population. In 1880, with a population of 50 millions, the number of Protestant communicants was more than 10 millions, an average of 1 in 5. If the members of the Roman Catholic Church be included, the proportion will be largely increased. The multiplication of handsome religious edifices is equally remarkable. Many American churches are noted for their beauty. All the large cities have examples of church architecture which would not discredit towns, having a history as old as that of Coventry. And in rural districts, the church spire rises above the cottages and trees as frequently 
as they tower over the hamlets in the old country. One of the grandest churches of modern times is undoubtedly the Roman Catholic Cathedral of Fifth Avenue, New York, a massive Gothic structure of white marble, and in the same avenue are quite half a dozen other churches of great beauty and architectural merit. It is estimated that 30 millions, or nearly three-fifths of the entire population of the country, are within the pale of the Christian church. 24 millions of these are Protestants, of whom the Methodist and Baptist claim the largest proportion. Next in numerical order come the Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Christian, Disciples of Christ, Congregational, Episcopal, United Brethren, and a host of sects which it would tire one to enumerate. The buildings and other property belonging to these various bodies are estimated to be worth, in the aggregate upwards, of $350 million, 70 million pounds. The clergy in the United States, upwards of 77,000 in number, are maintained solely by the worshippers. The government, of course, gives nothing to any. There is no dissent, because no sect is preferred. The leading part which religion played in the settlement of this continent had an effect which continues to mark the American of today. He is a church-going person and a liberal contributor to the cause of the church, though he has outgrown the strict and narrow creeds of early days. As late as 1705, aristocratic Virginia decreed three years' imprisonment and many political disabilities upon anyone who should a second time assert disbelief in the Trinity and the Scriptures. But the government of New Amsterdam was rather more advanced, for in 1664 it decreed that no person who professed Christianity should be molested, fined, or imprisoned for difference of religious opinions. The revolutionary struggle quickened the march towards complete religious toleration. The fear that England would establish the Episcopal Church in America, if the colonies should be subdued, drew together all the other sects and all favorable to religious equality, and therefore opposed to the claims of the English Church. This, says John Adams, contributed as much as any other cause to arouse the attention, not only of the inquiring mind, but of the common people, and urged them to close thinking on the constitutional authority of Parliament over the colonies. And the intensity of colonial opposition to the state church is shown by the special instructions of the Assembly of Massachusetts to its agent in London in 1768. The establishment of a Protestant episcopate in America is very zealously contended for by a party in the British Parliament, and it is very alarming to a people whose fathers, from the hardships they suffered under such an establishment, were obliged to fly the native country into a wilderness in order peaceably to enjoy their privileges, civil and religious. We hope in God that such an establishment will never take place in America, and we desire he would strenuously oppose it. In addition, therefore, to the dissatisfaction which the state church produces at home, it is justly to be charged with being one of the chief causes which led to the loss of the colonies abroad. When the colonies triumphed, and a constitution had to be made for the government as a nation, there was but one course possible. Since no sect could be given a preference, and especially not the Episcopal sect, which had been the least loyal of all to the cause of independence, it followed that perfect equality must be established. The state must protect all religions alike, and accordingly the Constitution provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
Such is the charter under which Jew and Gentile, Christian, Mohammedan, and Hindu stand equal and secure in their rights. The various states soon followed the spirit of this law, Virginia taking the lead. Provision for the support of the clergy was erased from the constitutions, and yet the variety of healthy and vigorous religious life in the United States today is greater than anywhere else in the world. So much for a free church in a free state. We are unable to make comparisons between the amounts contributed each year for religious purposes 50 years ago and those of today, because the census returns are silent upon this point. At the time of the revolution, 1776, there were 1,461 ministers and 1,951 churches, which gave one minister for every 2,053 souls and a church for every 1,538. In 1880, there was a minister for every 660 and a church for every 553. This shows that although the country has increased in population at a pace unknown before in the history of mankind, its churches and ministers have not only kept abreast of this movement, but have actually exceeded it. Wherever the American settles, he begins at once the erection of his schoolhouse and his church. The principal sects, according to the census of 1880, number as follows. Methodist, 3,286,158. Baptist, 2,430,095. Presbyterian, 885,468. Lutheran, 569,389. Disciples of Christ, 556,941. Congregational, 384,800. Episcopal, 336,669. The Roman Catholic Church claimed in 1883 to have 6,832,954 adherents of that faith in the United States, but church membership is not reported. This estimate includes all the members of those families which are in any way connected with it. The adult membership may therefore be estimated at two-fifths of the above, nearly two and three-quarter millions. The American reader knows that in Britain the state continues to establish and endow one among the numerous Protestant sects, which it calls the Church of England and another called the Church of Scotland. With delightful impartiality, the state endorses the Episcopal form as the Church, i.e. the true divine system south of the Tweed, and is equally assured that north of that small river, the aristocratic apostolic succession becomes inoperative, and the democratic Presbyterian idea constitutes the Church. Parliament is supreme over both, and Her Majesty is the defender not only of the faith, but of both faiths. In England she is a devout Episcopalian, in Scotland a Presbyterian. But as all Scotland is of the latter faith, and the sects represent only the minor differences which inevitably crop up among the polemical Scots in any institution, secular or religious, the state church, although partaking of the nature of privilege, and hence insulting to the other sects as implying their inferiority, is not, in Scotland to the same degree, the irritating and almost intolerable grievance which it is in England. A Presbyterian family in Scotland may not belong to the established church and yet retain its social position. In England it would be almost, if not quite impossible, for the church people constitute society. 
Episcopacy is the only fashionable form of religion, the only form that is good form. It is the rule, and exceptions to it are not numerous, for Episcopal clergymen in the country districts to decline to meet the ministers of other denominations who are not clergy at all, in the estimation of these, the only true successes of the apostles. Instead of being a bond of peace among people in England, religion is made by a state-preferred sect a bone of contention, and produces more discord than the Episcopal Church heals. These bitter quarrels do not even end at the grave. Most unseemly and discreditable disputes occur even there over the right or non-right of the members of other churches to be buried among their own people in the only graveyard of the district. One cannot but marvel that a people so given to the observance of the outward proprieties of life should permit scenes which I am sure have not their like in even the most ignorant lands. A recent various act of Parliament does something to remedy the evil, but the matter is still far from being upon a proper footing. The sale of livings is another scandal which Americans will hear of with perhaps equal surprise. There frequently goes with the land purchase the right of appointing the clergymen of a district, and as the emoluments may be great, this post has a marketable value. It ranks just as so many additional acres in appraising the estate, and we constantly see advertisements offering for sale a clergyman's position to such and such a living. It matters not what the character or attainments of the purchaser may be, if in orders. If he has the cash and buys his appointment, then he is the lawful minister of the unfortunate congregation, and it is powerless. This system results in another evil. The rich purchaser may not have the slightest idea of pursuing his holy calling. He buys a revenue of, say, £1,000 per year, and he hires a poor curate for £150, and the difference is his profit upon the investment. One step further, if my American reader is in a state to believe anything more monstrous in the path of this established church, the right to appoint a minister at the death of a present incumbent is often sold by public sale. A poor, faithful clergyman is old and must soon die, how much bid for his place, gentlemen? Going, going, gone. This is church life in England. I often wonder how one of our bishops of the Episcopal Church can cordially take by the hand of his fellow bishops of England the receivers of the disreputable fruits of this system. Archdeacon Farrar has just been good enough to tell us he does not wish it disturbed. Of course not, but he is not in a position to judge impartially since he cannot be held to have quite clean hands himself. The evils of the state church flow from its parent, the monarchy, of which it is the legitimate offspring. Its archbishops and bishops residing in palaces and rolling in wealth are the religious aristocracy. The thousands of poor curates who drag out existence upon pittances represent the masses. The revenues of the state church exceeds five million pounds sterling. The church owns all kinds of property and is squeamish about none. An editorial in the London Times recently called attention to the charge that the Archbishop of Canterbury, walking between certain of his residences or churches in London, would pass a hundred gin palaces erected upon land owned by the church, upon which the rents were raised from time to time as the vile trade flourished. But church people who will sell the right to cure the souls of men naturally do not hesitate to sell the right to destroy their bodies, both strictly for cash. 
The present Church of England of the Monarchy is in the respects I have noted unworthy of fellowship with its pure offspring of the Republic, but my readers will not have failed to observe that all the evils which cling to it flow from its degrading connection with the state. As our own Episcopal Church abundantly proves, that they are not inherent in the system. When the political aspect of the matter be settled, as it is settled here, the branch of the Episcopal Church in Britain will become as pure as the other. After a trial of free and independent existence, nothing is more certain than that a proposition from the government to give to the Protestant Episcopal Church of America the position in the state at present occupied by the Episcopal Church in England would be overwhelmingly rejected by that body as injurious to the life and usefulness of the organization and derogatory to the true position of religion. If the Church of England enjoyed one year's freedom from state control in like manner, it could never be induced to return to its present dependence upon the state. As the British landlords stand today, who once stood bewailing the coming ruin from the repeal of the Corn Laws, as the American slaveholders stand, who once stood predicting a saturnalia of bloodshed in the South when the slaves were freed. So will the English churchman stand who sees the state church ruined by its separation from the state. Short-sighted men. From the day the Church of England is free and independent of the state, its power and influence will begin to grow with redoubled strength, and all the other sects will be stirred to increased effort. Indeed, an independent Church of England which no longer implies the inferiority of others, may prove itself the power which is finally to absorb within its folds all the sects and restore to Great Britain the unity of religious form unfortunately lost when the political invaded the religious domain. The breadth of view, the large tolerance, the fading importance attached to mere dogmas of man's own creation, which characterize the present church, appear admirably suited for a foundation upon which after the scandals resulting from state control are eliminated, can be built a church which will draw all religious people to its fold and become in reality, as in name, the Church of England. We do not yet see in the Republic a tendency to the obliteration of sects. We do see, however, that the preliminary stage toward this has been developed. The sects are mingling more and more, one with another, in many great works. Cooperation embracing all the sects is noticeable. The Jewish rabbi, the Catholic priest, and the Episcopal minister, and those of all the other denominations are constantly seen together, occupying the same platform and advocating the same measures. When this stage of progress toward unity is fully developed, the next step is not far distant. Without church rate or tithe, without state endowment or state supervision, religion in America has spontaneously acquired a strength which no political support could have given it. It is a living force entering into the lives of the people and drawing them closer together in unity of feeling and working silently and without sign of the friction which in the mother country results from a union with the state, which, as we have seen, tends strongly to keep the people divided one from another. The power of the church in America must not be sought, as Burke said, of an ideal aristocracy. In rotten parchments, under dripping and perishing walls, but in full vigor and acting with vital energy and power, in the character of the leading men and natural interests of the country. Even if judged by the church accommodation provided and the sums spent upon church organizations, democracy can safely claim that of all the divisions of the English-speaking people, it has produced the most religious community yet known.
End of chapter 7. Religion.